Let's stand together and let's turn on our Bibles this morning uh, to the book of Acts, chapter 22. We're studying the book of Acts together on Sunday mornings. We come to chapter 22. If you're with us today and you don't have a Bible, we want to get one into your hands so you can follow along with us this morning. Men are coming up the aisles right now. Wave to them and and uh, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage that we're studying today for your convenience. And then we really want everyone in the whole world to have a Bible and to know the Bible. And so if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord uh, to you this morning. Acts chapter 22, uh, three verses this morning, beginning in verse 21. And then he, Paul speaking, uh, related to Jesus, said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And they, this audience that was listening to him, uh, listened to him until this word. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. And then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him, that is Paul, to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your book and we thank you for your word here, the revelation that it is of you. And and we, as always, we just marvel at the diversity of it, how every thought, every precept, the verses, the paragraphs, all of them so often so diverse from one another, even within a chapter, and yet each one of them intended to do something important in our lives. And we pray that as we study these three verses that something good from your throne would be accomplished in each one of our lives. All we want to do is to be prepared for heaven in this lifetime and to be conformed in the image of your Son as a result of that. And so we pray that you would continue to change us from uh, on the outside and the inside by your Spirit this morning through your Word. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> in chapter 22, the Apostle Paul is declaring his testimony to a very, very large group of Jews, religious Jews, in the area of the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And we remember that he had been falsely accused by uh, some Jews who had come from Asia to Jerusalem in order to celebrate the same feast of Pentecost that Paul was there uh, to celebrate. And uh, the accusation, a false accusation, was raised against Paul that he had brought a Gentile by the name of Tro, uh, Trophimus into the area of the temple and the temple grounds that was reserved for uh, Gentiles alone, uh, and for Jews alone. And despite the fact that uh, this accusation against Paul was completely uh, false, the accusation did create a riot among the religious Jews there at the temple. And Paul was grabbed then by this crowd, and there's no crowd in the world, uh, no mob in the world that is more dangerous than a, a religiously motivated mob. And they grabbed Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, the idea probably being that they dragged him from the area of the temple 
grounds immediately before the temple that was reserved for Jews alone and pulled him out into the area of the te- uh, 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 courtyard of, uh, of the Gentiles and then proceeded to beat him there. And not merely to beat him, but their intention was to beat him to death uh, in, the, in this very, very religious environment. Paul was rescued ultimately by uh, a large military uh, force of uh, Roman soldiers that were a part of a dispatchment of Roman soldiers to keep peace in Rome, and they uh, headquartered in what was known as uh, the Fortress Antonia, which uh, abutted the Temple Mount area so that the soldiers could be close to that area because if any kind of a riot or revolution against Roman rule was going to occur, it would probably start in the area of the Temple. And at least 200 Roman soldiers with the centurions and the captain of the entire outfit, they waded into the crowd in order to rescue some person who's being clubbed to death at this point in time. And when the Jewish mob saw uh, that the Roman was co- Roman forces were coming in in force, they backed away from Paul and allowed the soldiers then to grab him and, and rescue him from the beating that was being uh, meted out upon him. Paul was then being hustled off to the fortress for his own safety with the intent of then interrogating him to try and find out how in the world this riot uh, started, what was the cause of of the, um, the disturbance. And as he's being ushered away from the area of the temple, he stops the commander and asks for permission to address the crowd. And then uh, almost, you know, certainly anti-intuitively, you would have thought that the guy would have said, no, you, whatever you've done, that's enough. I'm not going to give you another chance. But he gave Paul an opportunity to then address uh, that crowd. And probably he did so with the intent of learning what is uh, the cause of this riot, how it had occurred. Uh, Roman soldiers were much like law enforcement today. When a riot broke out or there was an incident of some kind, they would have to write it up. They would have to provide a full report. It would go up the channels of the Roman Empire. And at this point in time, he has no idea why this has broken out. And perhaps Paul addressing the crowd will uh, uh, reveal that to him. And so Paul is given permission now uh, to speak to them. And so at this point, Paul is some safe distance away from uh, this uh, crowd, and he's in an elevated position within the safety of, uh, of the Antonio Fortress and able to look over them and speak to them in a way that everybody uh, can hear him. And Paul then proceeded to uh, share his testimony, his salvation story, as we saw last week, with the crowd. It's fascinating to me to watch. There's a lot that fascinates me about this passage. But what also fascinates me is that when Paul began to speak to them, that they quieted down, that they went from the kind of rabid frenzy that they were in, uh, intent upon beating a human being to death in a religious sight, 
to when that same man stands up to speak to them, they become completely quiet. You could have heard a pin drop as they begin now to uh, listen to him very, very attentively. And they listen to Paul, and it's interesting what they listen to Paul uh, from Paul and remain quiet and attentive in doing so. Paul, as he lays out his testimony, he claims to have had two conversations with God, with deity, with Jesus himself. They didn't flinch at that at all. They didn't throw dust in the air. There was no riot as a result of that revelation by Paul. And then further, they sat calmly through Paul's claim that Jesus himself had instructed Paul to depart from Jerusalem because the Jews would not receive uh, his testimony to them. And Paul speaks this to them, and there's not even, it didn't produce even a ripple of protest, not a ripple of unrest. And everything is going perfectly fine until in verse 21, Paul declared that Jesus told him to depart from Jerusalem and then added, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. And at the mention of that one word, Gentiles, the entire crowd explodes into an uproar once again. It was a mob, it was a riot, it became an attentive audience, and then mention of this word Gentile uh, exploded them into a, a riotous mob once again. And you notice what they proceeded to do. We're told uh, specifically they begin to cry out, and the idea in the original language is they begin to kind of wail and lament in a way that a wild animal would, that has been hurt or has been injured. And the idea is that at the mention of this word, somehow their heart has been emotionally, they've been wounded by what Paul has said. They then begin to tear off their clothes and tear their clothes. And in the ancient world, to tear your clothes was when you heard some kind of news was that this news has impacted me, like the news with Janice today. That news impacts me. It's broken my heart. It's torn my heart. And then in order to give an outward expression of what's happening inside of me, in my heart, they would tear their garments to reveal the depth of the pain that they felt at what uh, they had heard. They began to throw dust in the air. This was an expression of outrage. And the reason they probably threw dust and not rocks was because rocks weren't available there in the area of the temple. And then they proceeded to call for Paul's death. And they declared straight-faced with all seriousness, that any man who would say what Paul had just said is simply not worthy of being alive, not worthy of continuing his life in this world. And when you look at that reaction, you just, at least I do, I look at it and I go, wow! He didn't curse any of their mothers. He didn't threaten... Uh, their wives or their children. He just simply used the word Gentile. Now, I noticed that I have used the word Gentile multiple times already in my sermon, and yet not a single one of you has torn your clothes off or thrown any dust in the air or thrown anything at me or called for my death in this room. They say, you know, they say a lot of things. 
but they say that when our reaction to something is disproportionate to the stimuli, then it always reveals that there are underlying issues behind our reaction. For instance, if my wife were to cook me bacon and eggs for breakfast and then serve it to me at the table for breakfast, and as she served it, the toast was burnt, and I took the plate of food and I threw it against the wall in the dining room, that would be a disportionate response to burnt toast. A proportionate response would be something like, honey, the toast is kind of burnt, like way burnt more than I can eat that. Uh, can we have another couple of pieces of toast? That would be a proportional uh, response to burnt toast. My disportionate uh, uh, response of throwing something against the wall that way rev would reveal that under the surface, I'm upset about a lot more in my life. There's a lot more going on in my life than burnt toast. And so when we see their reaction to the mention of the word Gentile, there has to be a lot more here than meets the eye. And so it raises the question, what's behind the reaction, uh, this reaction of theirs? Part of it had to do with the uh, very considerable hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles uh, in those days. The Jews looked down mightily upon the Gentiles in those days, and, uh, and, it, and oftentimes it was not without justification to be fair to the Jews. Uh, some rabbis would wake up each morning, and some do even to this day, and their first prayer that they pray to God is, I thank you, God, that I was not born a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. It indicates there's a problem somewhere here in a prayer like that. Some rabbis went so far as to teach that the Gentiles had been created by God for the sole purpose of providing fuel for the eternal flames of hell. That was the view, that was the attitude related to Gentiles, that we were kind of human presto logs that God just kept coming along in order to throw on the fire and keep them stoked throughout eternity. It wasn't unusual at all for Jews to consider, uh, refer to Gentiles as dogs. Part of it was out of pride, but in part it was simply because the, ap the description was very, very apt concerning uh, Gentiles. In light of the fact that much of the Gentile world in, in those days, they lived like dogs. They lived like animals. They lived only to satisfy their base nature, their base appetites, and the lusts of their body. And that turned into a certain kind of a life, even as it does today. And by comparison, the Jews were a much more holy people. The Jews referred to the Gentiles as the uncircumcision. And uh, nobody really would flinch about that maybe today, but it was a put-down. In the ancient world, it was a racial slur that was being uh, meted out upon uh, a Gentile or the Gentile world. The Jews, you might be aware are sometimes referred to as the circumcision. And they're referred to as the circumcision because of the covenant that God made with Abraham that included physical circumcision, identifying them as God's chosen people. 
And so it communicated when they said somebody was of the uncircumcision. They are the uncircumcision. It communicated that these Gentiles had no relationship with God the way that the Jews uh, did. No serious Jew at the time would ever eat a meal with a Gentile. Uh, no serious or devout Jew would have anything to do with the Gentiles. But supremely, what offended the Jews here the most in what Paul said was what they understood Paul to be saying and Paul was saying. And that is, was this idea that Gentiles could be saved and establish a relationship with God independent of Judaism and independent of the institutions of Judaism. In other words, independent of ever keeping the law of Moses or ever being sacrificed. And they rightly concluded that if the Gentiles could be saved independent of these things and without becoming converts to Judaism, then God was saying that the Gentiles were on equal footing with the Jews in the sight of God concerning salvation. And they were upset not only that Paul declared as much, but that he claimed to declare it as a revelation from God. And to them, this was absolute blasphemy. They were absolutely okay with evangelizing Gentiles, but only that those Gentiles then, in beginning a relationship with God, would first become Jews. They would then become a part of uh, Judaism, so to speak. And they didn't like the fact that Gentiles, as Paul was indicating here, could be forgiven of their sins and establish a relationship with God without first becoming converts to Judaism. It was absolutely inconceivable to them that these awful, sinful, animal-like people like these Gentiles and that the comparatively good and religious people like the Jews could each be seen as equally in need of salvation by God and that God would require each of them to be saved in the same way and to be saved on the basis of faith and not on the basis of works, not on the basis of keeping the law of Moses or in circumcision. Well, what was behind this attitude toward the Gentiles on the part uh, of the religious Jews? And this is where I want to spend the remainder of our time here in examining it this morning. Because the scene that is described in these three verses is absolutely appalling to me. And it's why I didn't just skip to the next section. I thought, Lord, there's something here that just really has to speak to us. If it's not an issue in our life, it certainly inoculates us against uh, going down the path that they have gone down. Because here you have a group of people who not only claim to know God, the God of the Bible, but further, they thought themselves to be the only ones who could properly represent him in the world. And how they could, at the same time, be so completely out of touch with the heart of God that they would then respond to even the word Gentile in the way that they did. 
And when you look at it, the arrogance of it, the pride of it is absolutely stunning. And yet what is more stunning is they are oblivious to the offense that they are. They are oblivious to how far away from the heart of God they are. They think they are God's people and yet uh, representing God in this way. And I don't want to examine this this morning and, and look at this uh, religious crowd here for the purpose of kind of shaming them from the distance of 2,000 years or throwing stones at them uh, this morning, but with the recognition uh, that I have within me fully that I am capable of doing exactly the same thing. And I am capable of becoming exactly the same person that they had become myself. And I want to look at it with the consciousness that somewhere in me, and I believe it's somewhere in each and every one of us, it's just a difference in terms of what, uh, in what measure it's represented in our hearts and in our lives. But each of us has this capacity for the same attitude and the same behavior, the, some capacity to become just such a person myself and become the very thing that I dislike seeing in them so much. And I want to learn from their mistakes because I know their goal was noble at one time and they got on a wrong path. And so to look and to learn from their mistakes regarding how to be drop-dead serious about God in this world, our relationship with him, fulfilling his call upon our lives, and yet not to follow them to where their zeal for God took them to a place where they not only alienated the whole world in God's name, but then ultimately ended up fighting against God as a result. And the first thing that I notice that is a warning to us, the first thing we see in them is an ignorance of God's heart of love for the world, his concern for the whole world, all the people in the world, Jew and Gentile alike, the idea and the understanding that is in the Bible from one end to the other, and that he longs for the salvation of both. And this heart of God for all people, his desire that every person, Jew and Gentile alike, would come to know him, it's represented not just in the New Testament, but it is represented throughout the Old Testament, their scriptures, the scriptures that this mob ought to have known. And Isaiah prophesying of the coming Messiah of Jesus in Isaiah 49, 6 He prophesied, indeed, he says, that is, the Lord says, it is too small a thing that you, speaking of Messiah, Jesus, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation, not only to the Jews, but to the ends of the earth. 
Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7, God declares concerning his temple, he declares, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. The prophet Hosea, chapter 2, verse 23, speaking prophesying for God, then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy, and then I will say to those who were not my people, Gentiles, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. Malachi writes, for from the rising of the sun, as he prophesies for God, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and every place incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. The entire Old Testament book of Jonah speaks of God's love for the Gentile world. And not only for the Gentile world, but for Gentiles at their absolute worst. And his desire for their salvation, for our salvation. And these religious Jews that Paul was addressing here, their hearts were completely out of touch with the heart of God as is revealed in the scriptures on this very issue. Probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible that speaks to it is found in the New Testament and is spoken by Jesus himself, John 3.16. For God so loved the world, before we even get into the part of the verse that speaks to the way to be saved, the path of salvation, the way of salvation, to whosoever's, to Jew and Gentile alike. All of it comes out of the recognition that God has a heart of love for the whole world, for Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God loves the world, and to lose sight of that in any generation as God's people is, in my mind, to take the first step forward uh, and toward what that mob had become. Every person we will ever meet in this world, every person we will ever have a conversation with, every person we will ever see or interact with in life is loved by God. And that person is a person that God is working uh, in 24-7 to try and bring that person to repentance, a faith in Jesus Christ, a relationship with God as a result of that. And he is doing that in their life with as much fervor and uh, with as much love toward them as he ever did in our lives before we became uh, Christians ourselves. Whatever we might think of some people, however messy some people can be, or entire groups of people can be, or how unpleasant they are to be around, God loves them and wants to save them. And if you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, it does not matter where you've been in life, what you have seen, what you have done, what you have said, what you have 
heard what you have been in the middle of. God loves you. He values your soul even when you do not value it yet. And hopefully you value it this morning. And he longs out of the greatness of his love for you to save you today and to bring you into his family and into a relationship with him. As the old saying goes, there are none who are so bad that they cannot be saved. There are none who are so good that they don't need to be saved. God loves people, and he loves every person in this world and longs for them to be saved. And apparently it's something that we can even lose sight of as Christians because Peter wrote in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 9, of the heart of God toward every single human being in this world. Peter wrote that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. That's how he views the world. It's how he views the individuals within this world. A second thing we notice about this uh, religious uh, mob here a, a little bit in terms of avoiding where they ended up is that they turned the intent of God concerning the law of Moses completely on its head. They got it not only wrong, they got it exactly wrong. They made and interpreted the law of Moses into something that God never intended it to be. They read the law and the prophets, they read the law of Moses, and they concluded that it was something that God had given to them and to mankind that as a means by which in keeping it, we can somehow make ourselves righteous enough before God that we can make ourselves self-qualified for entrance into heaven. And essentially in doing that, making salvation a matter of works, as opposed to how salvation is represented in both the Old Testament and the New Testament on the basis of a faith in a Messiah and in a Savior that God would one day send into the world in order to provide us with salvation. The entire Old Testament is a type or a shadow of the Savior that God promised to send into the world. It's all a picture, a shadow, a type of Jesus Christ himself. And because of that, Jesus, when he spoke to the religious leaders of his day, he said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life. And what he's saying to them there is, you search the scriptures from an absolutely wrong-headed perspective. You search the Old Testament scriptures with the idea that somehow my Father has given it to you as a means of keeping and as a means of establishing a self-righteousness that will make you acceptable to one day get into heaven. It wasn't given in any any desire or, or aim of that at all. Jesus, again, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have everlasting life, but these are they which testify of me. Salvation, and as faith in a coming Messiah, and a, a past having come Messiah, Old Testament, Mid and New Testament, all has to do with putting my faith, salvation is found in putting my faith in that Savior and in that Messiah. 
The law of Moses was given in order to expose us as sinners, not as a means by which to make ourselves acceptable before God and then say, on the basis of my good works, now you need to let me into heaven. Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul wrote in this regard, he said, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight, that is God's sight, by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. It's important in in the application for us this morning. It's important that we be very careful not to read the Bible in a selective or a self-serving or in a uh, solely self-affirming way. And it's very easy to fall into it. I know many Christians who are exactly in this place. And it is very easy to fail to rightly divide the word of truth and instead to look only for those passages in the Bible that reinforce my own natural views or my opinions or that reinforce my own prejudices or they come alongside and undergird some natural bent of my personality. And then adding to that the, the, the following step of then conveniently ignor- ignoring those portions of Scripture that are not consistent with my own views or my own likes and dislikes or my own personality. And when we do that, we can end up fashioning even the, the worship of even the God of the Bible and do it even as Christians and turn all of it into the worship of ourselves based upon what we choose to emphasize or de-emphasize concerning God's revelation of himself and his will as it is in the scriptures. And this religious crowd, they fell prey to a tendency that I think is in every one of us, the tendency to underline and memorize the scriptures that appeal to our own personalities, to our own likes and dislikes, our own likes, our own natural bent, and then to ignore those scriptures that do not. And this is represented, and if, if I've lost you at this point, I want you to come back for this. Because this is the reason I say all of what I've said. Because this kind of thing is represented in every legalistic or liberal church in the world. People gathering around an interpretation of the scriptures that appeals to their flesh and then a willingness to disregard or explain away any passage in Scripture that then contradicts or is intended to bring needed balance to that view. And both groups, but whether liberal or uh, legalistic within the body of Christ, both groups have Bible verses to support their view but they become unbalanced and then ultimately become very wrong because they are not willing to honestly examine their view in the light of the whole revelation of Scripture. And in every single one of us, 
to one degree or another, probably half of us in this room are born with a natural bent toward legalism. And the other half of us are born with a natural bent in our relationship with God and our handling of the Scripture toward liberalism. And it's in all of us, in some combination, but present in each and every one of us. And this is why it is so important for each of us, whether we possess a natural tendency toward legalism or toward liberalism, to read the entire Bible and to do it with an honest and a humble heart to allow the entire Bible to fashion me as a person and fashion my Christian life as opposed to me fashioning the Bible and getting it absolutely upside down and getting it backwards. The third thing that I notice here in terms of what to be aware of to avoid is that they had completely lost sight of their purpose in the world. God had spoken to the Jewish people what their purpose was in the world, and he spoke it to them all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when he made them a people by calling Abraham to himself. And he declared to Abraham there, now the Lord had said to Abram, we'll call him Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And that mob in Jerusalem stopped at that particular point in their understanding and what they wanted to accept of God's commission of Abraham and did not live under the weight of what Jesus said, uh, the Father said immediately following to Abraham, and in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. And again, this goes all the way back to God's vision for Abraham and his descendants, the Jews, that God would give them a land, that God would bless them, he would make them a great nation, but also that in them all of the families or the nations or the peoples of the world would be blessed. And how has been all of the people of the world been blessed by the Jews and the Jewish people? One great way that we've been blessed is God brought the the Scriptures into the world through the Jews, the Old Testament, and most of the New Testament. But the single greatest blessing that the Jewish people have been uh, to the world is that by God's grace, through their bloodline, he brought a Messiah into human history. He brought a Savior into history. He brought Jesus himself into human history. And they were, as God called them through Abraham, to be a nation that would testify to the Gentile world of the goodness of God and the moral excellence of, uh, of the Lord, and they were to do it as a witness to the whole world, so that as they loved God and they walked with God and they kept his commandments, not as an expression of self-righteousness, but to keep the commandments out of a heart of gratitude for how God, good God had been to them, that God would then bless them 
so that when Gentiles made their way through the land of Israel, from the north to the south, to the east and to the west, and it is no accident that when God gave the children of Israel a piece of land in all of the world, he gave them, yes, but a sliver of land. But where is that land located? It is located at the intersection of three of the great continents of the world, Africa, Europe, and Asia, all traffic north, south, east, west of the entire Gentile world went through the land of Israel and God did it by design so that when the Gentiles would go through the land on their travels, they would see how God had blessed and prospered the land materially, but even more than that, to see the quality of human being that this God produced within, uh, within human beings and even within a nation, so that as they saw this before their eyes, they would then ask the Jews, tell me about your God, a God who is able to make a nation like this, and a God who is able to make a human being into what we see in you. And that's what God intended of the Jews related to the Gentiles, not to build walls and make their name uh, a curse name uh, in the world, and as a result of it, to then draw the Gentile nations of the world into the worship of the Lord. It is so important that we be a holy people in this world and to be a separate, separated people in the world, but we must never turn into what these men turned into in our passage. That is a result of that, to become proud and to become exclusivist, to become self-righteous and to become insulated. I would actually contend concerning the Great Commission, that the fulfilling of the Great Commission on our part as Christians to make disciples of all nations all around uh, the world, that there, the fulfilling of that Great Commission does almost as uh, something as good and as necessary in us as Christians as the good that it ever does to the people that we reach. In, in, in the simple fact that it keeps us as Christians and as groups of Christians and as churches and as the body of Christ as a whole from becoming inward in our focus and becoming insular because historically, when we do that, whether it's an individual Christian or a church or the body of Christ as a whole, we forget that God has given us a great commission, what our attitude is to be to this unsaved world out there, and that we are to be engaged in reaching it. When we cease to do that, then the time in our lives that's intended to be invested in that is going to be invested somewhere else. And almost always it will turn then inward into the body of Christ. And when it turns inward into the body of Christ, instead of being an outward focus like what we're supposed to have, Ultimately, we begin to uh, criticize one another, we begin to tear the church down, tear down other Christians, and ultimately, we end up cannibalizing uh, ourselves. The, his, it's so important to uh, be engaged in this 
outlet part of our lives as Christians. It isn't a mistake that the Sea of Galilee, as anyone that goes to Israel is told, the Sea of Galilee is a living sea. It is a living lake because there is a flow of water in and a flow of water out. And the Dead Sea is the Dead Sea for the simple reason that there is a flow of water in and there is no flow out. And the same thing will happen to God's people when we forget what our attitude is to be uh, to the world around us and the reason that we remain uh, in this world and haven't been raptured and taken out of here having uh, finished our service. Fourth, I want us to notice, and I think because I think it's very instructive, this will be my final point uh, this morning, is to their, their reaction, of course, reminds us of the danger of pride. Pride is ugly all the time. It's just never like, wow, that pride looks really good on you or looks good on me. It's always ugly when we see it in a person's life. Uh, but there, it, 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 the, there is the worst pride of all in life is a spiritual pride. And you look at these Jews that were so aghast at even uh, the use of the name uh, Gentile. And anyone that knows anything about the Old Testament, I mean, we're studying the book of Jeremiah on Sunday nights, and you ask yourself, who in the world were they to look down on anybody in the light of their long history of sin and wickedness and idolatry and rebellion against God and that they re reached multiple times in their history where they not only engaged in all of the sins of the Gentiles, but that they then outsinned the Gentiles. They made up new sins that the Gentiles hadn't even thought of, all the while claiming uh, to be God's people. And then when you, uh, and, and this was their history. It fills the entire, you know, Old Testament. And then this uh, outrage that they have in and, and the sense of superiority related uh, to the Gentiles and especially, again, in the light of the fact that they engaged in all of these sins and, and excelled the Gentiles in those sins. And uh, only they had committed uh, those sins uh, against, in a greater sin against God, and that when a Gentile that doesn't know the Bible sins against God's law, they sin against conscience, but they don't know his law. The Jews sinned against conscience and the word of God. They sinned against a greater light, and they were more guilty in the eyes of the Lord for uh, their very sordid past, as it's recorded in the Old Testament. God should have destroyed them repeatedly in the course of their history. But the fact of the matter is, God should have destroyed me many times before I became a Christian. And he would have been righteous in doing it every single time. And I have no doubt that he could have many times righteously wiped me out and destroyed me many times since I have become a Christian. I think that it's both wonderful and awful how quickly we forget our past upon becoming Christians. It is wonderful in that, in to, in that we're strong in the realization that God, and he's the only one that can do it, 
can give someone like me a second chance in life, a, a clean slate, and that when he saves us, he makes us a new creation. He gives us a fresh start. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. And if he remembers it no more, we have the freedom not to remember it uh, anymore. And all of that leads to the fact that we can now get a fresh start in life and no longer live under the condemnation of our past life, a condemnation that would bury many of us, but to live free now in the grace uh, grace of God. The uh, quickly forgetting our past upon becoming Christians has an awful angle to it in that if it goes to the place where we then forget what we once were before we were Christians and what we would still be today if we had not become Christians and the realization that if God had not saved us when uh, he, he saved us, that we would be far further down the path of sin than we, would, we even were when he did save us. And we forget all of these things that we were and what we uh, once were and could, would still be apart from the grace of God. And, and it is the remembrance of that that produces humility within us. And I think that so often, especially as the world is moving away from God, it's moving away from the Bible, it's moving away from Christianity, and to the degree in which our nation is doing that and the world is doing that, then it, the more horrific people's uh, uh, actions are, the more shocking the news becomes. There's never, I don't pick up a newspaper anymore and, uh, and, and pick up a um, the news online this, this morning or the, yesterday I looked at it and, and here's this woman, I don't know from where, a one-year-old and a two-year-old and she left them deliberately in their car overnight, 15 hours in that while they cried all night for someone to come and rescue them and they died in that car. And this is not the exception anymore. Every time you go to any site, it's one, two, three, four, five of these kind of things that are, are going on. And often I think we can be shocked and horrified by the actions of the unsaved, the Gentiles, they're living like animals. And if we don't then couple it by quickly remembering that God saved us out of those very uh, sins, or forgetting that if God had not saved us when he did, we might very well have progressed into those very same sins and into, those, into the lifestyles that horrify us. It is good to be reminded that each of us in this room is worse than anything we have ever done and anything we have ever thought. And it produces a, a healthy self-distrust within us and a healthy humility within us. There is very little that I read about or see in life that I, do, that I look at and say, in the wrong place, the wrong time, under the wrong influences, with the wrong childhood, with the wrong whatever, with this not being developed, that if I could be probably in those shoes, that somehow I'm incapable of these things. I don't say that you need to have that kind of a, of a distrust or view of yourself, but I certainly have it uh, concerning uh, myself. And there can be this tendency to 
begin to think that God has saved us and now that he's cleaned us up a little bit, that God ought to somehow raise the standard for what kind of person he's willing to deal with or talk with or to save or uh, to bring into his uh, family the kind of person he's willing to have a relationship with lest God go, you know, crazy and just let all kinds of riffraff come into his family willy-nilly. And then we begin to think to ourselves in a pride that we have has no basis in ourselves. It's all in the grace of God and what he's made us into. And we can begin to think to ourselves, might not even put it out into words, but we'll hold it within our hearts. And we think to ourselves that if God won't raise the standard, to our specifications for what kind of person he ought to deal with or to save or to bring into his family, then we'll do it for him. And it's called legalism, and it's the very thing that this mob was guilty of, and we can be guilty of it as well. Someone has said that humility is made up of two ingredients, honesty and a good memory. And I believe that to be very, very true of most of us. I certainly believe it to be true of me. At a moment's reflection upon the person that I once was and the person I would still be, the person that I am capable of becoming independent of God's Word and His Holy Spirit is always very, very faithful to produce humility in me and then more than that, a needed compassion within me and within us for the world. And this mob had forgotten their history. And we can do the same and end up with the same disastrous results because it is to forget the grace of God in our lives and then the next step is to underestimate his grace and his love for others. And so a little recap this morning as I close it. These things that are helpful, not all of them will speak to us, in any of us, in, you know, as a single individual, but one or two of them may be nipping something at the bud within our hearts this morning or something that's beginning to get traction that is unlike Christ. We must never lose sight of the love of God for the whole world not just us, not just Christians, but the whole world. We must beware of failing to rightly divide the Word of God, emphasizing certain things while neglecting others and producing an imbalance in our understanding of Christianity and how we view the world around us. We need to stay engaged in the Great Commission, not only for the sake of the lost, but for our own sakes. And we need to be aware of pride, the pride that goes with forgetting how much grace God has shown us and continues to show us. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, thank you for these three verses. We thank you for the record of just an appalling, ugly, ugly self-righteousness, 
such a terrible misrepresentation of you as you're revealed in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, in this religious crowd that somehow thought that in becoming what they had become, it pleased you and would somehow be attractive to the world. And Lord, as we've studied it this morning, we recognize the same tendency, the same potential to become exactly that in our own lives and to mar your name and to mar Christianity before the world and to push the whole world away from Jesus, the sense of disgust rather than seeing the beauty of what he can and will make a human being into. And we do pray that as we've studied this passage this morning, that if even in some small way we have begun to walk down any of these four paths that we've talked about today, that you would prune those out of our hearts and out of our lives and keep walking us into the fullness of your heart and your nature, Lord, and in the fullness of the revelation of yourself that is found in this incredible book called the Bible. We ask for that work of your Holy Spirit in each of our lives to inoculate us and to keep us safe as your representatives in this world. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.